Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. Uh, we're going to continue in our series of Ready. This will be the last uh, sermon, ser- sermon in this series. Uh, Chad has walked us beautifully through the last couple of weeks to difficult topics on when sickness comes to stay and then when sex destroys. And today we're going to walk into another topic that's no less challenging. Uh, we're going to walk into the area of homosexuality and how we minister life into those things. Now, if you have somebody in here that you're, if you're an adult and you have some younger kids and you have convictions about you being the first one to kind of walk your kids through these things, just know that it's okay to follow that conviction and, and take your kids out of here. We're completely okay with that. That's not awkward uh, for us. So this has been a heavy, heavy few weeks. Like, this has been a heavy few weeks kind of preparing for this message. I, I feel this pressure to kind of, I got to get this right. And that pressure is not on just one side. It's on either side of this issue. And by far, this is the most challenging message that I have ever constructed in my time here. There, there is a lot of hurt around this topic. There is a lot of oppression around this topic. And there's a lot of anger and frustration around this topic. And so I've just had to remind myself these last few weeks that like God's grace is sufficient for me today, that I can walk in a way that I may not always get it right intellectually or theologically or in my actions, but God's grace is always going to be there to pick me up and move me closer to Him as I confess and I learn. And so what I feel like what needs to happen when we enter into beginning to understand how to minister life into this area is really to address the area of knowledge and theology. And so today we're going to answer four questions. Two of those questions are going to deal with education. One of those questions is going to deal with what do we do now going forward with Jesus. And then the last question is going to talk about like a cultural temperature gauge. Where are we at right now? And so uh, we want to answer these questions wisely and, and figure out what word God's Word says and, and what His design says and, and what we need to know going forward. So those four questions are, 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 where are we now? Where are we as a culture now? Where do we sit? Where does this church sit theologically? Where do we differ possibly from other people who have convictions who are of faith in this area? And then where do we go from here? Where do we as a group of believers move forward in? And so let's just Let's just tackle those questions today. Uh, We have become a polarized culture. That's where we are at today. You read the headlines today. You saw Charlottesville. You know that that's true. The most wise person who has ever lived on this earth wrote in his book, Ecclesiastes, Solomon. He said that nothing has been done that will not be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. So certainly we have walked in this kind of a division before. We've been there before. But what seemingly is happening is that our media and our culture are driving this sort of narrative that wants us to gravitate towards the extreme ends of every argument. Uh, The people on either side of any issue often seem to be the loudest voices and often seem to be the most extreme in their thought processes. And then what we do is we emulate them in what we see and we take on viewpoints and positions on things without actually doing the heavy lifting ourselves of study and research and reasoning And what it has created is a toxic culture that just normalizes the objectifying 
of people, meaning that we treat people like objects and not God-created individuals who share the same hopes and dreams and loves and cares as we do in our lives. It is fed by a social media culture that can post anything about anyone at any time, regardless of whether it's true. And it allows people to cowardly sit behind screens and say things that they would never dream in a million years of actually saying to somebody's face. And so because of that, unfortunately, we have great division in our culture. And so when I come to an area like this, I know that there is no way that I'm going to teach this. That some people are going to disagree, well, you were too hard on that or you are too soft on that. And that certainly has already been the case today. And that is the toughest job as a pastor to be in disagreement or have those disagreements. But listen, I certainly don't answer to you. I answer to God. And I I care much more what he thinks about me than what you do. Not to say that I don't value your opinion or your thoughts. And so let's have a conversation about this today. Understand that this is no longer a niche topic in America, the world, or the church today. Not in 2017. Few issues matter more to this culture than this one. And everyone is seemingly talking about it except for the most part, the church. We can take this kind of hope and pray stance that we just hope and we pray that we don't have to deal with these things. But as a shepherd of this flock, I will not be silent on something that causes division and oppression and disruption on God's people and his creation. And so we will humbly walk into this discussion today. Let us check our egos at the door, our dissension at the door. And I ask you to do that because this topic is not just a lifestyle or belief or a topic to many people in this room. It is personal. There are people in this room who are gay. There are individuals in this room who were gay. There are moms and dads who have had sons and daughters who've come out with same-sex attraction. Some of you have brothers and sisters, nieces and nephews, uncles and aunts who have identified as gay. And so our nouns and our verbs and our actions matter today, and they matter every single day because this affects people personally. And so let us humbly walk and lovingly walk into this discussion today. And so here's the data. Here's what the data is telling us. It would say that those who support a traditional marriage only, those who have that viewpoint, are declining in this culture, and those who support a traditional marriage along with a same-sex marriage is rapidly rising in this culture. If you are over 90 in this room, your generation has a 30% affirmation rate of same-sex marriage. Those of you who are between 70 and 90, your generation affirms same-sex marriage at 38%. And those of you who are Gen Xers, those between 1965 and 1980, your generation supports same-sex marriage at 49%. And then you get to this generation, those born after 1980, those, those dreaded millennials that I are one, and please, we prefer the name Mosaics now. It's pretty PC for us in that area. This generation supports same-sex marriage at a clip of 70%. And so it's growing. And for the first time ever, 62% of white mainline Protestants, meaning 
the traditional Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, those denominations, 62% of those denominations are in favor of allowing same-sex marriage in church. And so what do we do with all this? I mean, what do you do with all of that? Well, I, look, I, at first, I just think that we have to be honest with ourselves and understand that this battle has already been fought and decided within this culture. Like, same-sex marriage is the law of the land, and it is not going away. You can't ignore it or pretend it away. And so as a church, we have to understand how we live inside of this culture, how we interact, how we love, how we serve inside of it as well. Because pretending and circling up and trying to just stay amongst ourselves is not an option when we know Christ and his gospel. And so there is certainly a little bit about where we are at at a culture right now. Now let's just talk about where we sit at life theologically. I don't want to drag this on. I don't want to confuse people in this. So understand that the position of Life Community Church is that we put homosexuality into the same category of sin, not by itself, but with every other thing that God communicates as sin, whether it by action or inaction, meaning things that God says that we shouldn't do or us not doing the things that God has told us to do. We don't elevate this topic. This isn't a soapbox issue for us. Now, we believe that sexual sins are more severe because the Word supports that. And it supports it because it's not just destructive to the, the creation outwardly. It is destructive to the inward creation that God has designed within ourselves. Chad talked a little bit more about that last week. You can reference his sermon to hear more. But when it concerns salvation, sin in the eyes of God is the same. God is capable of forgiving all those sexual sins just as much as he's willing to forgive, to give grace and mercy and restoration to the murderer and the liars. The root cause of all sin is a broken relationship with a creator God. And we are far less concerned of the action of sin, how brokenness and corruption manifest itself out into our actions, than we are with the root cause of brokenness and our need for a savior in our lives. And so that is where our convictions lie. Now let me tell you how we got there. And I'm gonna try to lay this out in kind of three different lenses when we look at a topic like this, we want to take it to the Word. We want to see it through Scripture. What does Scripture have to say about it? Then we want to bring it into design. How does God's design, what does it say about this? And then we want to understand God's purpose. What does His purpose say about this? And look, I can't get into all the nuances of why we formulate the position that we're in. I'm going to try to give us a basic overview. So our text, our Bibles, are, are, are compiled of about 31,100 plus verses. Of those verses, there are just six scriptures that deal specifically with homosexuality. I have listed those verses in your bulletins, and I would ask that you would take those home and read them. You have Genesis 19, Leviticus 18 and 20. You've got Romans and 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. I want you to read that. We're going to go through this, but here's the deal. I want you to go through them because context matters 
around every verse. You, you need to read the chapters and the chapters around those verses to understand what the author is trying to put forward. And so, listen, I certainly am wanting to provide godly wisdom, and it certainly is important, but it should not cause us to be lazy in getting into the Scriptures ourselves and seeing what God has to say. And so we're going to read five of the six pieces of Scripture this morning, mostly because Genesis 19 is an entire chapter, and it's the chapter about Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, we just don't have time to run through that today, but I don't think it, it takes away anywhere from our conviction. So let's just read them and understand this. We're going to pull these verses out of there. I don't like to do that. There is con- context around these things, but I just want to see the breadth of Scripture and what it has to say about this specific topic. So let's start in Leviticus 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. Leviticus 20, 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Romans 1. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that were contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. 1 Corinthians Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then the last one is 1 Timothy. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedience, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual, immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And so those are our scriptures. So when we as believers want to enter into an issue or a topic, we first use the lens of scripture to see how we interact with the world and what we believe. What does our scripture say? And and what it seems to say, when, when we read the pages of scripture, it seems to be clear that God has said that this is not what I would have for you. Not just in those verses, but in the context, in the chapters that are surrounding them, that this is not what I would have for you, my creation. Of the 31,000 plus verses in our scriptures, there, there isn't one that speaks positively towards any aspect of homosexuality. And, and we have to take note of that. And so that is certainly a major piece of why we believe what we believe. Now, let's just talk about another lens. Let's talk about design. 
how did God design his creation? Well, when we look at how God created the world, we know that in the beginning, he created people in his own image, and he created them male and female. Not just in humanity, but in all of his creations. And his command to the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and those who bear his image was to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue the earth and rule it through his power and his glory. Look, there is a design that is present in all of creation that we know to us, that's known to us. We see it when we look out in nature. And if we look back into some of that context around the Romans 1 verse that we just read, if we go back just a few verses, we have Paul saying that, look, he says, look, what is to be known about God is plain and evident to you. It is plain and evident. God's attribute and his divine nature are all around us. We are without excuse. In other words, God's attributes and his design are present and we can see it. It is known to us, and we are without excuse. And then Paul goes on to say that he gave them up, that Roman culture, to the lust in their hearts and their dishonoring of their bodies, for they exchanged the natural, the known, for the unnatural. And then he lent them to their debased mind. He allowed them to walk in that, where they mistook the unnatural, and now see it as natural. There is a natural order created by God in his design where things just naturally go together. And I don't feel it necessary to recap the story of the birds and the bees for you to understand that. And so we certainly have convictions when we look at the breadth of Scripture and his creation and say, hey, there is a design here that is known to us that I see. And in that design, there is a purpose. In Matthew, Jesus reaffirms this idea of design and speaks to its purpose. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so that they are no longer two but one flesh. And so God, when he creates man, thankfully recognizes, hey, it's not going to be good for that guy to be alone. And he creates woman out of man, and there is a purpose in that design. There is a complementary design in God's creation, meaning that we as men and women complete each other. There are certain things that God gifted to women that he didn't gift to men. Amen. And there are certain things that God gifted to men that he did not gift to women. And in those giftings, when they come together in a harmonious way, it elevates his creation up in their weaknesses and then promotes and honors and glorifies a good creator. There is a complementarianism that is innate inside of his purpose in his design. There are direct commands that are given to us in our text, in our scriptures, of how men are to treat women and how women are to treat men. There is a design for both men and women when it comes to child rearing and raising. There is commands on roles in in owning a household and living in a household and living inside of the world. 
There are strict commands. And all those things are present because God wants to see his people flourish. Let's not miss that our God wants us to flourish on this earth. And it so is only inside of his design and his purposes that his creation does that. God wants to see us thrive, and that is why his design and his objectives are what they are. And so when we formulate our theology in any area, we want to try to walk through it in these types of lenses to make sure that we are making the most informed interpretation. And so it's because of how we read Scripture, how we see creation, that we believe that homosexuality is not what God would have for us to flourish in this life. Now, let's talk about where we differ. There are certainly believers who have a different viewpoint than we do. As I have stated earlier, the majority of Protestants are now affirming towards same-sex marriage. Now, that's not a biblical term. Same-sex marriage does not exist in a biblical term, but that's the vernacular of the day for you to understand. How did they get to that position? Well, I've sat down with quite a few people over these last three weeks who have a different viewpoint or theology than I have in this area. And I'm telling you, they, they were, they were God-honoring conversations. We didn't have an agenda. We, we both didn't feel slighted. And I was certainly uh, affirming of what my stance was in this position, but we had a conversation. And I think this is what we need more of. We would be better served to try to understand each other than to try to just yell and avoid one another. So what I want to do is to highlight these differences and then to sort of lovingly refute them. And and here is where I would challenge you not to just let this issue rest. As as a believer, as I've said this, but you need to know where you stand. I certainly am going to be about shepherding and guiding you, but don't let your work just stop with me. Like challenge your own thoughts and beliefs in this area. Look, God is okay with you questioning your thoughts. He's not hiding anything that you're going to discover. Oh, okay, that's different now. So to have an honest discussion about homosexuality, we need to break it down into a few different parts to understand what the other side of the issue is kind of asking us for. And, and so the, the parts that they break them down to, or, and we should break them down, is same-sex attraction, uh, a promiscuous homosexual lifestyle, and then a covenantial marriage that honors God's covenant of marriage and himself. So, so know that the other end of this spectrum is not asking you, those who are believers, are not asking us to accept a promiscuous, non-covenantial, homosexual lifestyle, much in the same way that we don't accept a promiscuous, heterosexual lifestyle to be what God would offer for us to flourish. What they are challenging in us in is this thought process of, of marriage between uh, um, two men and two females that, that ho- holds the covenant of God and his commitment uh, and uh, commitment to one another. That's the major disagreement amongst believers. So just, let's just talk about this issue, just really briefly, of same-sex attraction and one choosing to be born, a, or one choosing or one being born a certain way. I, I would just tell you that, that I don't find this, this discussion to be helpful much in any ways. Uh, why? I don't know why we have to have the discourse. Uh, I certainly... Uh, didn't ask to be born with an addictive personality. And Paul certainly didn't ask to have a thorn in his side that afflicted him his whole life. Brokenness spurns brokenness. I don't think that there is a paradox in God's creation in discussing this. His word is clear regardless. 
Choice or no choice. And we would be better off, we would be better off trying to have a discussion about how I serve God in my design despite it, and how we as believers come alongside of those who face it. This trivial argument doesn't seem productive because it's dealing with the leaves and it's not dealing with the roots. A conversation about how God designed and created creation and marriage and gender roles is helpful and that's where we need to stay. Now, when it comes to affirming this term of same-sex marriage, what, what certainly seems to be the case for the majority of people who affirm this as a part of God's design is that they just want to elevate love as an ethos, that God loves everybody and so should we. And certainly that is true to some point, and it's noble. However, for, for many, that aspect of love just becomes tolerance and acceptance, and positive thoughts towards one another. It becomes locked into the emotional realm. And while certainly it's noble and honorable, it can lack perspective. Look, godly love has never allowed us to do what we want. Let us not forget the foundational reason that God gave us Christ. Christ came because creation was broken, and it was said that our hearts are broken and deceitful, that we pursue our own selfish desires and our own evil thoughts. So to say that we each should do what we want and love everybody forgets the broken body of flesh that we still deal with today, that Christ came to redeem and why we are in this broken chaos in the first place. And this aspect of love and how we love is something that I want to dig deeper into as we address the last question. The other lens that people who have a different philosophy on this might eject to in our theology here is in the way that we read scripture. Some would say that the verses surrounding homosexuality are more ambiguous or unclear than what we may believe here. And if scripture is unclear, if it is, uh, is, is a mystery, we, we should be careful to take positions in those things. And look, there are times, let's be honest, there are times that there is great mystery in our text, and we, we don't know always what God means, what he's saying, and it's okay to say those things. I, I just don't find that same ambiguity and lack of clarity here. Uh, of the, the six scriptures that we have in our text, three of them can be problematic to interpret. The three Old Testament verses uh, Genesis, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, they can possess a, a problem in how we handle those things. Look, Genesis 19 is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And look, uh, you're going to squirm when you read that. That is not a fun chapter to read. And, 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 and the verses in Leviticus can seem to be plucked out of a bunch of other statues that would say, hey, you also should not be eating shrimp or oysters or lobsters, and that women should have certain purification and cleaning, cleaning rites after pregnancy and after her period. And so our culture doesn't observe most of the Levitical law today. So it can be hard to elevate these verses and say, well, homosexuality is wrong because it says it right here, which they would say, look, listen, brother, when's the last time you had some shrimp scampi? And so I am willing to say this. I don't know exactly what to do with Genesis 19. It's clear in a lot of things, but it also promotes some things inside of that text that I am not comfortable promoting. I, look, I believe that God can do what he wants to do. I just don't know if I have the right interpretation to teach it. So, so, but Leviticus, 
where it may seem that we're cherry-picking a few verses, uh, I think it lacks perspective when we have that thought process. Uh, I would challenge us to understand Leviticus uh, in a way that God is trying to prevent the spread of communicable diseases and promoting safe and sanit- safe sanitary practices so germs and diseases didn't spread. In this period, they did not have the safe hygiene practices that we have today. They did not have antibiotics, and that is why Leviticus is so thorough with like what you are to do with your body waste in camp, to take it out. That is why it's so thorough in what you're supposed to do in washing. That's why it's so thorough in what you're supposed to do after pregnancy and what you eat. That is why it is there. Do this. This would be a good research, research project for you. Research the Black Plague. You will find that the Jewish people of that time were persecuted and killed because they were far less affected by the Black Plague than any other culture in that world at that time. So much so that they actually thought the Jews had cast a curse on the remaining cultures, and that's why they're killing them. And do you know why they were less affected by it? These Levitical laws right here. These Levitical laws are why they were protected by them. But we have come a long way in hygiene and cleaning And God, in Jesus, I would say, releases us from those statutes in the New Testament. That cannot be said for the sexual statutes that is in Leviticus. Paul refers back to them in his epistles. And that is something that we want to talk about right now. So those remaining three verses taken out of the New Scripture, they're written by Paul. What people who have a different stance than we do compel Uh, is about Paul's word choice. Specifically, they have problems with the words that Paul uses to describe homosexuality and how it is interpreted. There are two Greek words that Paul uses in 1 Timothy and Romans and 1 Corinthians, and those two Greek words are arsnokoets and malakoi. Arsnokoets and malakoi. The word arsnokoets just seems to be a word Paul made up. We, We can't find it anywhere else. Paul just made up a word. What it seems to be are there two base words in these Levitical laws, in these sexual statutes, that Paul brings together to make one word. Uh, The word arsnokoets actually translates literally into man bed. And the word malakoi literally translates into effeminate. So those on the other side of this topic would say that we are misusing the word in interpretation. They would argue that during the time that Paul wrote this text, there would be much stronger words to have used to blatantly come out against homosexuality than the ones that he used in these, these books in the Bible. Uh, I, just, I just, when I do my study, I just don't seem to be able to get to reading those verses in that way. Uh, it, it seems to take a bit of theological gymnastics to make that sound the way that it sounds or exclude it from the interpretation of what we currently have today. And look, I'm willing to be challenged in that area, but when I look at Scripture in totality, when I look at design in totality and purpose in totality, it's hard for me to see Paul meaning something other than what we have currently interpreted it to mean, especially knowing the root Greek words base and what they translate into. And so there, for your knowledge, is just the other end of the issue, the other spectrum of this idea. And so let's just kind of talk about, for our remaining time, like, where do we go from here? 
Like, where do we as believers go from here? So I just want us to refocus just a little bit. And so we certainly believe that we have cause for our convictions, and we certainly believe that we have means to back up that position. But just because we hold to a position doesn't mean that we would allow ourselves to create dissension between us and anyone else who disagrees with us. Today we have walked through six scriptures that lay inside of 31,000 plus verses. And while they certainly deserve weight and need to be accounted for, they should not become more important than the rest of those 31,000 verses. Because inside of those 31,000 verses, there are hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of commands that God has given to those who profess and trust in the name of Christ to love, to care, to serve, to encourage, to fight for the oppressed. They have called us to move away from hatred and strife and dissension. Why does it seem at times that we are much more willing to oppose each other and viewpoint than to actually love somebody that's different than us? We cannot allow six scriptures to blind us from the clear commands that God has given us elsewhere in this in this text that we begin with. There are some of you may, maybe in this room that I may disagree with how you are living your existence. And I would hope and I might tell you the truth that I might want you to move closer to God's design for you to flourish. But it does not allow me or afford me to forget the very grace and love and mercy and forgiveness that was first given to me by the same God that saved us both. I can't forget that ever. It doesn't mean that we can't hold in our convictions and be truthful to what we see God say. I'm not promoting a love that just is all tolerant. Don't hear me say that. But it doesn't mean that we can't love people in disagreement. As a Christian, what we often try to do, and I think this isn't true for most of you in this room, but what can happen in this culture is that we just take these scriptures that are clear about these commands, and we just pluck these verses out of the text, and we use them as some sort of punctuation at the end of the argument. We get, we get people that come around this issue of homosexuality, and we say this, oh, you believe that? Well, Leviticus 18, it's an abomination. Drop the mic, I'm out of here kind of moment. Can we quit weaponizing Scripture? Like, that's not what it was given to us for. These aren't bullets in your gun that you can just shoot off anytime you have conflict or disagreement with anybody in life. That's not what they were given to us for. When is the last time that you have authentically moved somebody in something because you guilted or shamed them? Many of you in this room know that that has the opposite effect in reality. Do we think that we get to change the heart. We don't. God changes the heart, and he partners with us in ministry to bring people to an experience with a very risen Savior. He changes their hearts, and he changes their desires. Can we instead use Scripture as a way of deepening a conversation about the things that we object to? Can we use these to deepen the conversations with people who have different thoughts and maybe even our thoughts? Because look, God's word holds up to scrutiny. It is not a house of cards. We can wrestle with these things. Uh, Stephen Covey, who is a renowned leadership author, 
wrote about, write about, writes about seven highly effective habits of leaders. Maybe you read the book. One of those habits is to first seek to understand and then to be understood. And so look, we can hold deep, profound convictions in this area and still have loving, graceful conversations with one another that doesn't dehumanize each other in the process. During this preparation, I, I had about an hour and a half conversation uh, with somebody that I would say is a friend of mine. And he is same-sex attracted, and he's moving towards a relationship with somebody, uh, and he's a believer. And look, he knows that I have disagreement with that. He knows that I have disagreement with that. But we had a profound conversation, and, and he said something to me that has just it marked me for today. It marked me. Uh, he said, remember, just remember, please, uh, because I asked him the question, how do I, I think this is a question that we, how do I love you in my difference with you? Where do I start there? Where, where do I go? Because I want to. And he said, just remember that, that when you're coming around this issue or genre or lifestyle, you just remember it's me. It's not a genre and it's not a, a lifestyle. It's me. You're talking about me. And look, I'm grateful for those words and his grace to me because he matters to God and therefore he should to us as well. And look, I'm certainly not saying that, that he doesn't know where I stand, but we certainly can have fruitful discussions in those things. The last thing that I just want to remind you of as we move forward and minister life into this area is just to remember this. Jesus' harshest words were never directed at the sinners of that day. They were always directed at the religious people in their self-righteousness. We have to remember that the gospel of Christ, that the hope of Christ is a mirror into our hearts and not just a window that we look at. I have said this from this stage before. The Old Testament law was given to us to show us the corruptness of our own hearts and point us to the fact that we could never, by effort, earn God's salvation or good standing with the Father. Jesus Christ, in His perfect life, in His death, and His resurrection, affords that to us. He brings us into a wholeness with God. He brings us into that wholeness. We would much be better served in this culture by first looking at our own hearts and our own issues and walking towards the newness that life has for us in Christ instead of telling people where they fall down and where they fall short and where they need to fix their stuff. Let us take the plank out of our own eyes. If we ever want to have a larger mouthpiece again in this culture, if we ever want to see those poll numbers move in an opposite direction, it will become because we are genuine about our issues, our sin, confessing them to the Father, walking towards them. It will come when we pursue with all of our hearts to care for the poor and the widowed, those who Jesus spent the most of his time with on earth, those on the fringes of society. People are sick of words when it comes to those who profess Christ. It has to be lived out authentically. It has to be exemplified in our hearts, in our deeds, in our words. 
Our faith is not a Facebook status. It starts with us sitting alone with God's word and praying for his spirit to move in our lives that he would move us towards his heart, his eyes, his desires, that we would cling to the things of God, that we would kill what wants to destroy us and kill us and steal from us those things that we call sin, that we would walk with our Lord as we look into the mirror first. It always starts with us. And so I plead with us today, that we would pray for God to bring hope and life and fruit into all of those who surround us in prayers, that, we would, that he would give us opportunity to, to prove his goodness and love to those who we interact with. And look, there are certainly a couple different lenses that it's hard to talk about everything in this issue. There are people who don't believe in the Bible or Christ who have a homosexual mindset. And look, we're not on the same ground. All we can do is love and be their friend. But certainly when we have believers that come together in this topic and have disagreement, we can stand firm on our convictions in the Word of God. So we know that as a church... We have a God-given conviction about his design and his purposes for it to flourish. We believe that God offers us more than what sin would promise us that it has for us because sin has never delivered on its promise and God has always delivered on his and we certainly believe that to be true in this area. But never let your pursuit of rightness outweigh your pursuit of kindness and your pursuit of justice and your pursuit of of walking humbly with your God. It starts with us. And we certainly can hold to our convictions, but we certainly cannot dehumanize people in the process. God's commands are clear in those things. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and we just praise you as a God who is well above our knowledge in our issues. And so, God, we just come around you today and we pray that you would comfort anxiety, uh, that, you would, that you would provide peace, that, God, you would just give us an eternal perspective, that we wouldn't get lost in these extreme viewpoints on life, that we would just focus our hearts and our minds on you. And, God, I pray for grace. I pray for grace. I pray for grace in our lives that we need to cover our sins. I pray for grace that will cover our wrongdoings in the way that we promoted this gospel, that we would get back to an authentic version of following you in life indeed. And we pray this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.